Class, we were studying the 45th sloka of the second chapter of Srimad Bhagavad Gita, where we find that the negativities which we can transcend when one becomes Nitya Sattvastha, when you get established in Sattva, tranquility, placidity. The Sattva speaks of illumination. In our life, whenever illumination happens because of perception, it enters in rajas. I see something that motivates me to certain type of action. I hear something that motivates me to some type of action. I take some mental resolution that motivates me to some type of action. So what is happening, sattva is constantly getting muted, mutated into rajas. But there is a state where illumination do happen, but it never entails in response. You can just stay in that state of illumination. Like when I am meditating on myself, it speaks of illumination. So here is the difference. That when we say we have to go beyond the stimuli response conditioning, that doesn't mean we have to become like a veggie in tamas. We can be in sattva and there we don't allow the mutation of the gunas to happen. That's what is meant by nitya sattvastha. Nitya means always in sattva. You don't allow the mutation. In our life, constantly that mutation is happening. We are taking risks, whatever the five senses are through which we are drawing in the high type of perceptions that constitutes our world, that in turn results in a lot of resolutions, that resolutions results in action. But, and from that action, what happens? The dualities, all the dualities, the dwandva in the form of pleasure and pain, or that's why it was spoken of as Nidvanda Nir Yoga Kshema Atmava. In the last sloka we studied, in the 45th sloka, that our life you will find constantly we are being baffled by the dualities of life. Sometimes we are in ecstasy, then next moment we are in dejection. So we are being baffled by this Dvanda, these dualities. And what's the other thing? If we just really try to find out what the entire life is about, is nothing but yoga and kshema. Constantly we are in chase of certain 
objects of desire. And when we get it, again, our attempt is how to preserve it. So life is full of concern between, because of this yoga and shema. But when one becomes nitya sattvastha, then this dwanda falls off, this constant chase after the desires of life. And once we attend them to preserve it, this constant attempt to preserve them, this falls off. So here we find that in the 45th sloka, actually it is the negativities. How to get rid of the negativities that has been spoken of. But now, even in our day-to-day -day life, we will find that one who is in a state of chronic depression. So for them also, you will find sometimes they're so depressed that the question of dualities have fallen off. There's no duality, pleasure and pain. He's just depressed. Nothing, even a joyful moment cannot make him happy. So he's in a way nidvandva. He is not in any way responding to the stimuli of life. And yoga kshema, near yoga kshema. This all the uh, chase after the desires, ambitions that has fallen off, to preserve that has fallen off. So when we say that when you go beyond the three gunas and you become nitya sattvastha and just try to explain that state by the negative traits, it doesn't actually give a very clear understanding of what that nitya sattvastha means. So now today we will enter into the 46th sloka, which speaks of the ineffable joy, which entails from being established in nitya sattva. So it's not a vegetative state. It speaks of an ineffable joy, the joy which is uninterrupted. That's being spoken of in the next sloka. So we will read that sloka and then enter into the discussion. The 46th sloka of the second chapter. Yavanartha Udapani Sarvata Samplutodaki Tavan Sarveshu Vedeshu Brahmanasya Vijara. So Brahmana, the one who is an enlightened Brahmin. Here the Brahmana doesn't speak of caste. One who contemplates on Brahman, one who has realized Brahman, is a Brahman. So when one is an enlightened Brahmin, the one who is a knower of the self, Brahmajana, Brahman, the one who knows the Brahman. Such an enlightened Brahmin, for him, all the Vedas are of no use. So here we find an assertion of the Vedas. It's the uniqueness of the Vedas. It's the only scripture in the world which says that you have to transcend the scripture. All the scriptures say you have to believe in the scripture. The Vedas, here we find in the Vedanta, they are quite bold enough to say that Vedas are good enough as the preparatory ground as long as we are not enlightened to integrate our life with the do's and don'ts, 
Vedas do play a role, but that's not the be all and end all of our existence. We can transcend the Vedas. When you become a realized soul, you go beyond the Vedas. So Tavan Sarveshu Vedas, what they hear on similes we spoke about. What's that? That when in a dry season, the well do have an utility or the pond has an utility. I go to fetch my water from there. But if because of tsunami or because nowadays we hear of that because of the global warming, the ocean level is rising and all those low lands where those ponds and wells are there, they get flooded forever because of the rise of the water level or of the tsunami, whatever it may be. Then what's the use of the ponds and of those small wells? They have all been engulfed by the ocean or by the overwhelming flood. So that's the idea which is spoken of here. Yavanartha Udapana. Udapana means the small bodies of water. When they get engulfed, when they get over flooded, Sarvata Sampluta Udaka. Udaka means water. Sampluta means overflowing. Because of flood, because of tsunami, it has got totally is covered with water. There is water everywhere. Tavan Sarveshu Vedeshu. Similarly, that all the Vedas with all the specific sacrifices, you do this sacrifice, you get a son. If you don't have a son, do Putreshti Yogya. To get wealth, you do such and such Yogya. To have long life, do such and such Yogya. So all these Yagyas actually speaks of specific desires to go to heaven to such and such yagya. So all these specific small desires, they are like a small pond, small body of water of the well. They get flooded when the realization is there. So this small happiness is actually overwhelmed by that ineffable joy of being established in the self. So that's the idea which is being exemplified through this simile. Just as the well, the pond, its existence gets annihilated, its no more existence is there. When there is a tsunami, where the water level has risen to such a level where all the barriers, the demarcations of those wells and ponds have been flooded everywhere it's water. Similarly, the one who is established itself all the small, uh, what you say, this quantum, the small packets of happiness, small packages of happiness, they become totally irrelevant because your life now overflows with abundant bliss. So now you will understand what this sloka is meant for to speak of the positive effect. The last sloka, by saying Nidwanda, and need yoga kshema, told the negativities which we can avoid. But that doesn't make sense because we find that the negativities, even by going deep into depression, we do to a certain extent avoid the negativities of life. So that doesn't in a way define fully the state of, of a jnani, of a realized soul. So say the speak of the positive traits, 
just as in the modern psychology. The present modern psychology, there's a branch called positive psychology. The idea is set that previously the cycle, the, the positive psychology, they say all the older psychologies are sick psychology. Why it is sick psychology? That when you have no mental issues, psychology has no meaning for you. That, that used to be in the olden days. Only if you are mentally sick, then the entire branch of psychology was there through suggestions, through counseling from the negative, from the negative state, from the state of sickness, they will bring you to the state of zero, a normal mind. The positive psychology have started saying, what about a normal person? Can he not think of something, a better qualitative, productive way of mental health? Why should I have to fall sick to become normal? Why as a normal person, I cannot think of rejuvenating my entire psychophysical existence so that I can have qualitative improvement in my day-to-day -day dealings with the life. So that speaks of the positive side. So here also, after speaking of the negativities which you can avoid, which we can get rid of with the help of spiritual evolution, that they're speaking something of the positive, the positive side. It is not just the sick side, the positive. What's the positive? You have a tremendous qualitative improvement in your life. You experience the ineffable joy, which is never interrupted. Now, what it is speaking of? This sloka can be very well understood with the help of Swami Vivekananda's allegory which we have, which we go on stating so many times to explain the state of mind, our state of mind. Swami Vivekananda used to say that our mind is like a lake. And all the thoughts, our concerns, thoughts, all the perceptions is creating the turmoil on the mind. And this turmoil of the waves, these are the chitta vrittis, the waves on the mind. As long as the waves are there, Swamiji is saying, you know, the lake is turbulent. I can never see the bottom of the lake. The bottom of the lake is visible only when the lake is calm, the water is not tormented, it is not there's, there's no waves, it is calm, and the water is clean and transparent. You can, as you see the bottom, you can also see the bottom of the lake. So Swamiji is saying that the bottom of the lake, of the, if, the, if I compare the mind as a lake, then its bottom is our real nature, which is Sat Chit Ananda Swarup. Sat Swarup speaks of what? In Vedanta, the word Sat has been defined one whose existence is never annihilated. That which is Nitya is Satya. So are we Sat? No, as a psychophysical existence, we cannot be Sat. We were born at a certain point of time, we are going to die at a certain point of time, and even when we exist, we go through the six Shadavikara. So we cannot be Sat. Anything which is not eternal is not Sat. So in Vedanta, Sat means that which is eternal, which was, which is, which will be. 
that which is trikal avadhika, whose existence is not interrupted by the three phases of time, past, present, and future. So when Vedanta says that you are Satswarupa, it is actually a negation of the idea. It's not an attribute. It's not something qualifying your real nature because the ultimate reality, I cannot understand it with the help of any adjectives. It is beyond all attributes. So when I say Satswarupa, you may say then that is an attribute. Chit is an attribute. Anand is an attribute. But Vedanta, if you have to try to understand Vedanta from its proper perspective, you have to understand in this way, that when they say Sat, it is not actually imposing some attribute on the reality. It is actually negation of my limited sense of existence. At present, I have the idea that my existence started at a certain point of time, is going to end at a certain point of time, and at present it is going through a lot of changes, mutations. So by saying Sat, our scriptures deny our limited existence. And then it says your chitsvarupa. Then immediately, even modern science will come to the picture and say, yes, nothing is annihilated. As a matter and energy, it's, it, it, it is indestructible. In some form or other, everything remains as matter or energy. Even the matter at last can be transformed into energy. So that cannot be destroyed. So here again, Vedanta asserts, no, it's not as matter and energy that you are sub. It's not that matter somehow conglomerated to bring forth as an accident, the consciousness. But consciousness is not an epiphenomenon. It's not a product of all the phenomenal processes. It's not an epiphenomenon. It is the foundation, the basic substratum of the entire existence. So that Satswarupata, which the scripture speaks of, that which is always there, which was, which is, which will be, is again Chit, this consciousness. And now again, we may be baffled and we may be confused. We may think that, okay, I. Maybe that the present state, I know that I exist. That is going to be there through eternity. That's what the scripture is saying. But is it that a very pleasurable state? In my present state, I find that for some time I'm happy, again I am dejected. Is this my destiny? That throughout eternity, I will be just going from one end of happiness to the other end of dejection. This dwanda will go on. So again, by ananda, the word ananda, the scripture, negates this dvandva, this duality of pleasure and pain. There's no, but the real, that your amnes of which you are always aware is ananda swarupa. Now the question comes, well, from where this misery comes, the suffering comes, the dissatisfaction in life comes? So here again, let us go back to the example of Swamiji. The mind is like a lake, its waves are the thoughts, the concerns, the anxieties, or resolutions, this speaks of the vrittis. The bottom of the lake is Sat Chit world. Now what Swamiji is saying is very interesting, that as long as the waves are there in the mind, the Sat Swarupata and the Chit Swarupata never gets filtered out. 
even when I am utterly suffering, I am utterly dejected. I know I am. It is I who am dejected. That I am the am uh, this my amness is always with me. I never forget about that. So, however my mind may be in turmoil, I never forget my satsvarupata and my chitsarupata. I know I exist. That is always there. I, with my amnes, am existing, whether I am happy or whether I am dejected. What gets filtered out is anandaswarupata. That self is an eternal bliss. That gets filtered out. So in this life, because of ignorance, agyana, the constant mistake which we are doing, we think that happiness comes from outside. That is, I want something, I desire something, I intently desire, till I haven't got it, I'm suffering. I'm dissatisfied. The moment I get it, I'm terribly happy. So it is that thing, the latest model of the car, the wealth, all those things has made me happy. Power, position in life has made me happy. That's what we think. But actually what Swamiji is saying is interesting. He's saying what has happened, it is never the desires make us happy. The fulfillment of desires never make us happy. It is the desirelessness, the absence of desire that makes us happy. So you can, uh, we will gradually relate with this idea, with this slogan. So what happens the moment when I have an intense desire? The, a child wants a new latest model of the laptop, father says, and the father says you get good grades in the exam, and that's the condition. I will get you a that's the laptop which you want. And the student, and the, he gets the good grades, he renounces small desires with one desire. What's the desire? I have to get the laptop. This big desire engulfs all other desires. In the mind, one desire is that I have to get the laptop. He studies red, gets the good grades, and father, as per the condition, buys the laptop. He gets it in his hand and he's ecstatic, full of joy. He thinks it is the laptop which has given us happiness. But what has happened? All the small desires were engulfed by this big desire. I want this laptop. The moment he gets it, there's no desire in the mind. There's a state of let go has ensured. Mind is placid. The Ananda Swarupada, which got filtered off, now is percolating through the mind and senses. The ineffable joy is coming from within. But out of ignorance, because of ignorance, we think it is the thing which I was desiring that gives me happiness. But it never happens. So now the thing is, if you can understand this, that it is the placidity, it is the desirelessness, the lack of desire that gives us happiness. Then the entire challenge of life will be how to be niralamba. Niralamba. Ganesha has been told niralamba. Lambo, So. Why, why Niralamba means the one who doesn't need any avalambana, doesn't have to hold on to anything. He just, by in the being mode, he's happy. Just by existing. He doesn't have to do anything to get happiness. Because he have, doesn't have to get anything. He doesn't have to chase after the desires. 
So he has gone from the doing mode to the being mode. Just by being established in his self, he's happy. The mind is never disturbed. The mind is ever calm. So now when you've reached, when we, it's not something that if that I just say, I will keep my mind and it happens. It do need a lot of spiritual training. First, you need the awareness of the real equation of happiness. And then you get established in it. And when you get established in it, that your life gets flooded with happiness. All those small tidbits of happiness, which I used to have after the fulfillment of desire, now gets flooded with an ineffable joy, which is not coming from outside, which is within, which is welling up from within. So now you'll understand what this sloka is speaking of. Yavanamatha Udapani Sarvata Samplutodati Tavan Sarveshu Vedeshu Brahmanasya Vijayanatha. The entire Vedas, all the small bits of happiness which we can have by the skilled responses to the challenges of life. That, yes, to get established in life, I have to learn how to respond to the challenges of life. The entire Vedas with all the yajyas is nothing but a skilled response to the challenges of the life to get tidbits of happiness now and then. They're like the small forms or a small body of water or a well. But when you know that just by being nitya sattva, by being established in nitya sattva, in the state of illumination, I am the self. And if I am the self, I have to get nothing. I'm already fulfilled. You're established in that. And the mind is no more turmoil. And that ineffable joy is something flooding your psychophysical existence, percolating through your body-mind, welling from within to flood you with happiness. Then what's the need of those tidbits? So it has lost its meaning. The Vedas has lost its meaning. You are now, you have now transcended the Vedas. It speaks, its karma counter speaks of all those small, small happiness. So the main idea is the moment we know that the happiness is something which is the essence of our being, the bliss is the essence of our being. Then all these activities, this our attempt to clench to, to the desires of the world is bound to fall off. As there's a very nice uh, story, there are nice, uh, you know, that in our tradition, uh, this Vedanta, apart from Vedanta, there's something called oral tradition, which we have got from our the Munis and the Rishis. And there are so many stories in this oral tradition. One such story is a very interesting story. It goes like this, that a king had a minister. And the king was highly, the minister was highly efficient. And the king was fully dependent on him. As he knew that the minister is very faithful and he's very capable, by delegating all the responsibilities to him, he was quite at peace with himself. But after years together, for, for years that minister was doing the same royal duty as a minister, now vairagya dawned in his life. 
he started feeling uh, disgusted with that way of living. He wanted to resort to the life of sannyasa, take sannyasa, renounce enough of this life. I want to, I want to renounce it. But at the same time, he was handling so much of responsibilities. So when he went to the king, the king was so much dependent on the minister. He went to the king and told that enough of this life, please release me. I want to lead, lead the life of renunciate. The king at the initially was got highly disturbed. He said, how can it be? I'm so much dependent on you. So he was insisting that he shouldn't leave. But the minister was very, had a strong resolve. He somehow went on insisting that he should be released. At last, King found that as he's so much having that strong resolution, it was almost impossible to keep him. So at last, though it was not his desire, though he was in no way willing to release him, he had to leave. So he left the kingdom. And there was no news of him for years together where the minister has gone. Years after, after probably some a decade, after 10 years, the king, just to have a look of his kingdom, in disguise was moving around his own kingdom and he went almost to the border, the neighbor's border, where the forest, dense forest starts. He was almost at the end of his kingdom. And he started entering into the forest a bit. The moment he went a bit deep into the forest, he was curious to see. He was really, he was to see a person sitting at a distance, reclining to the, uh, what you say, a stump of a tree. He was just reclining and he was just sitting there. He was just reclined to the trunk of a tree and he was at ease with himself. His legs were spread out and his hands were folded and he seemed to be very relaxed as if deep within himself he was contemplating bliss was as if flowing through him. The king was curious, who is this person sitting in this deep forest? At this, almost it was at the, it was a dusk, it was, it was about to be dark. So the king proceeded near him. He, when he proceeded, he, he just went near him. Now he was surprised. When he went near him, he recognized it's his minister. It's a minister who, after announcing the word who, of whom he had no news, he found it is he who was sitting there. Now he was really very much surprised to see him. He went and stood near him, thinking the minister will, of course, recognize him and will just stand up in reverence. After all, he was, the, he's the, he was his subordinate for such a long time. So he had that expectation that out of respect, out of reverence, he will come and stand in front of him. But the minister, even after looking at the king, was in the same relaxed way, he was in the same relaxed pose, he was sitting with the legs spread out and with the hands folded. The king felt a bit offended. It's okay that he is not my minister, but after all, he was my minister for such a long time. He should have a, such a little sense of that gratitude, respect. So 
Just seeing him has, has, has spread his leg and sitting with the folded hands, he just to uh, indirectly just, just uh, indicate that it is something which he has never expected. He expected that such a little, at least a little respect, a little reverence. So he indirectly told that Paul Felayakov said, well, from when have you learned to sit like this with your legs stretched out? Immediately the reply came, Hath Sameta Jabse, when I have learned to fold my hands. From that time, there is no fear, no want. Previously, I had the want, I had to stretch my hand every time in front of you. All the work I did at last was for that stretched hand, which wanted wealth, position, all those things in life. Hath Sameta, now I have folded my hands, I don't need, I have understood that the bliss comes from within. I don't have to stretch out my hand to get the objects of desires. So heart sameta, the moment I have folded my hands, I stretch out my legs. So this is the idea that when, that these are so many such stories that the king one day went to the forest, you see the gospel, and saw a fakir, a saint there. He was so impressed by him, he wanted to bring him to his palace. The saint was not willing, but because the king was insisting, at last he came. The king told that, I want to offer you some gift. Please come and stay. I want to offer you some gift. And in the early morning, Overnight, the saints, the sage said, uh, stay, stayed in the palace as a guest. The morning he woke up and saw the king in, kneeling down in front of the altar of the palace, praying to God, Oh Lord, give me more wealth, more power, more position in life. That's what he was praying. And the sage, even without uh, waiting for the king to come up, come back from his prayer, started leaving the palace. The king saw that Sage is going away. He is leaving the palace. The king immediately got up and rushed and told, where are you going? You promised that you will be here staying for some time and accept some gifts. I'm yet to offer you some gifts and you're leaving. And then the Sage replied, I never beg from a beggar. In the morning, I saw you're begging. You're still a beggar. I never beg from a beggar. This again, the same idea. That those that who are after the tidbits, pleasures of life are the beggars. They are satisfied with the udapan or the small folds of water. You will find that the, in Indian tradition, the sannyasis, many will ask us that why the sannyasis are called Maharaj. They have no wealth. They have no money, no personal money, nothing. And you call them Maharaj means the king of the kings. So why they are called Maharaj? So the rich, the, your richness, the richness of a people, the, what you say that the wealth of a person is not how much you have. The, wealth, the real sign of wealth is how much you are beyond the want. 
you may be a billionaire you may you may be millionaire you may be a billionaire but still if you have want you are a beggar and the one who has nothing but if he has no want nothing to desire for he is the richest person so that's the idea that's why that a sanyasi though he has nothing but at the same time he has no want he is established in himself we use the word swast in a different sense nowadays you know, if you ask swast hona means uh, is there no disease for you are you not diseased in any way are you maintaining your health that's the idea of swast but we have actually forgotten the real meaning of the word swast the swast doesn't mean physical health the word swast means the one who is established in himself swa means your own self and stha means sthita the one who is established sthita in his own self is swast so that's how that's why when is monk meets another monk he asks just to bring that just to make him aware that he shouldn't be again that he shouldn't be distracted by the apparent pleasures of life he should be established in himself to remind him they will ask swastho hona are you established in yourself and that with the passage of time the word swast lost its real meaning we use it oh if you have no disease if you are not sick you are just in good health and we say you are swast the real but actually we are all diseased only the one who is established in himself so one who is swa may sthit the one who is established in his own self is swast rest all are diseased why all are diseased what is the sign of disease that when i am enjoying health i am not aware of any particular part of my body health as if throbs to my entire body i am i have a sense of this bodylessness as if i have no body when you are when you are healthy what is the sign of disease that health which was percolating the life which was percolating through the entire body throbbing through the entire body now gets localized you say my head is aching i have a headache i have a heartache i have a, the my knees are paining my stomach is aching so what is disease that life which was throbbing through the entire body which if it uh, when gets localized to a particular part of the body that's disease your ease has gone you are diseased similarly the non local consciousness which is beyond locality the moment it gets localized in the psychophysical existence from then the disease has started so we all are diseased in spiritual sense the moment we get established in the self all these localities falls off all the udapana this speaks of the localities small bodies of water these are the localities they fall off samplutodaki you get flooded with the ineffable joy this speaks of the non locality the ocean and then you have transcended the vedas you see how these shlokas are wonderful just in two shlokas the previous shloka speaks of how to take care of the negativities of our life and then this shloka speaks of the positive aspect of what how it can help you to enrich your life how it can help you to have a fulfillment 
in this life, not by chasing after the desires of life, but to be in but to get established in yourself from transforming your life from the doing mode to the being mode. So that's the idea in this local Jesus podcast. So now, after this again, so this entire Gita, we will find that whenever Bhagavan says something immediately, the next moment there is a chance of some limited understanding, misunderstanding. So when he says to get established in the self, now Jiva will say that's exactly that's what I was wanting. I don't want this war. I want to just retreat from this war and be at peace with myself. So here Bhagavan is again saying that don't think that when I say to be established in self, it means retreat from life. Seek not, avoid not. That's the word of Swami Vivekananda. That will be spoken of in this next sloka, in the 47th sloka. That in whatever position the life has placed you, accept it. Don't go on hankering for more, but accept this, don't avoid this. Knowing very well that it is, you're just the instrument of the divine. It's a God who is working through you. Be at peace with yourself. The body-mind is working as per the will of the Lord for the certain responsibilities in which I have been placed. But the real me is in no way affected. The body-mind goes on with the position in which it is placed in life. But beyond it, the self is always at peace with himself. So instead of getting lured by the results of action, just go on doing the action without getting lured by the results of action, knowing very well you're the, you're the instrument in the hands of the divine. So that way, all the sangha attachments will fall off. And through action, you can enjoy the deep contemplation. The entire Bhagavad Gita is actually, if you are to say that, sometimes we say that in one phrase, you say the entire Bhagavad Gita, what it speaks of? It speaks of contemplation in the world of action, not away from the world, within the world, in, in, the, in the turmoil of its karma. You can still enjoy that ineffable peace. So that's why immediately after speaking of that ineffable joy, which comes when one becomes swastha, one gets established in his own self. Here, Bhagavan immediately speaking of karma, which in no way we have we should renounce. Karmanye, the 47th sloka of the second chapter. Karmanye vadhikaraste ma faleshu kadachana ma karma fala heturhu ma te sando stokarmani. Karmani eva adhikaraste. You are entitled to work. You have to. When Naren told Ramakrishna, I want to be in deep samadhi. I don't want anything. Just now and then to come out of the samadhi to sustain the body, I have little food and again go back in samadhi. Ramakrishna told that I never thought you are such a small-minded uh, person. I thought you were like a huge banyan tree under which people will come and take shelter. There is a stage even beyond that, what you are speaking of. 
and when narain is yet to realize what ramakrishna is speaking he told that i don't i don't want that ramakrishna is saying i will sit in your shoulder and make you do turghar kor and narain says i am your shop parbona i cannot do this is turghar kor that you sit on your shoulder and make you do and that's what god is saying here that imperative know it for certain action is imperative there is no way out it is not only for uh, arjuna or for narendra for all of us god will make us do what we are supposed to do in the words of jesus that you know that in the life of jesus very interesting that he has he had to bear his own cross the cross in he was crucified it was he was made to carry it so in the christian tradition they say we all have to jesus has borne the cross of the world but we all have to bear our own cross what does that means that the life with all its challenges is the cross which speaks of we have to bear with it we have to go through this turmoil of karma there is no way out you may say that the swami you are speaking you are yourself have came out of the so called sansar we are in sansar if you come and just we try to sit down and relate to each other that what's your responsibilities and i speak of my responsibility fine that i am in deep sansar i am immersed in sansar so many the type of responsibilities may be different we do have lot of things which concerns us worries us we have to take care we cannot run away in this life no one can run away so karmani eva adhikaraste you are entitled to work you have to but what can you do ma faleshu kadaach but never run after faleshu this the chase after the fruits of the action you can never get rid of the action you what you are entitled to you have to do but at the same time don't chase after the results ma karma phala hetur bhu that your motive means ma, you 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 shouldn't have ma is in the sense of negation that your you should never run after the fruit of action ma karma phala hetu karma phala hetu that you shouldn't go for the fruit of the action karma phal but at the same time if i say i don't want the results of action then what's the need for action i don't i then i need not do any action so immediately god is saying the last phrase na sanga na sangastu akarmani na sangostu akarmani is sandhi na sanga tu akarmani that becomes na sangostu akarmani nor let your attachment be to non action most of the time in our life when we are baffled by the challenges of life we retreat we say i don't have any desire just i forego them i forego i forget in the name of renunciation in the name of renouncing the so called challenges i am actually seeking the comfort zone the security zone it's not renunciation it is seeking i'm seeking the comfort zone so neither seek nor avoid take the responsibilities in your shoulders but what we have to do 
but go after the results. But at the same time, not resort to inaction. That's what we indicated by the term na sangostu karmani. Na sanga tu akarmani. Na sangostu karmani. So the word karma, first we have to understand in its proper sense. Just resorting to the Shankaracharya Bhasha, he says the word karma has three different meanings. Primarily, any action is karma. Again, when we do an action, the sanskaras which are formed, which again results in my future destiny, all the sanskaras enters in my future birth, it may be higher birth, lower birth, all the sanskaras determine. So this, the sanskaras which are formed by the karma is also means karma. There's a third meaning that because of the sanskaras, we are born in a certain family in the certain caste or position in life. In the olden days, it was caste. Now it is because of our inclinations, we will be resorting our studies to pursue a particular type of career. So that speaks of the Swadharma. So when we are performing our Swadharma, as we have to do it because our old, our past tendencies have at last placed me in this situation of life. So I have to go through all those things. I cannot simply renounce, but I do it with, with the aim for chitta shuddhi. That okay, my old tendencies were strong enough to keep me in this type of uh, position in life with a particular career, with particular profession. I cannot suddenly stop it. The past impulse is working, but what I can do, what can I do? I can switch off the switch of desire. When the fan is rotating, the fan is revolving. The way to stop the fan is not to hold the blades. That way I injure myself. A fool will do it. No one else will do it. What's the way to off the fan? Switch off the fan. Does the fan stops immediately? No. It goes on revolving because of its past in, in inertia, motion, motion, inertia of motion for some time to stop at last. So in our life, for all the actions, the switch is the desire. It's the desire, the past desire, which has resulted in all the actions, which has its own impulse. It has to go on, I cannot suddenly stop. The way if I start, like, try to stop the fan, by holding the fan, I will, by holding the blade, I will be hurting myself. Similarly, if I suddenly try to stop the actions of my life, I will find I will be damaging myself psychologically, physically. I cannot do that. In the, in, 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 there is no shortcut remedy. I have to go through that. But what can I do? Just the way to stop the fan is switch off the fan. Here also I have to switch off the flow of desires, which is this has resulted in the, all the past actions and the latent impressions, which has resulted in the present birth with the impulse for action. It has to go on, but I switch off that desire for the results of action and go on doing the karma. So here Bhagavan is speaking in that third sense of nishkama karma. So you have to do karma, do it with a, without seeking for the results. Don't seek for the results because knowing for certain 
the all the results of action which I think I enjoy, I never enjoy. God is saying, Bhagwan is saying, Ma Faleshu Kadachana. Don't run after the fruits of the actions. Because knowing for certain, it is not you who ever enjoy the fruits of action. This is a big ignorance. This is a big agyana that we think we enjoy the fruits of action. We never enjoy the fruits of action. All the so-called happiness in life is not something which I enjoy. It is just a lollipop of the nature to make us do something by which the nature is sustained. Its, its intention is never to give us happiness. So this chase after the results of happiness is something which itself speaks of our delusion. We are in, in this life, an eternal chase after the desire, which never gets fulfilled, you'll find. One desire you think is fulfilled, another desire comes. Why it happens? That why the follow we can never really, uh, the results of actions we can never enjoy. Because that's the plan of this nature. It is not meant for us. That all at last, if you try to find out all the desires, Ashana, all the desires at last can boil down to three Ashana. Nothing else. Uttreshana, Vittashana, and Yashashana. The scriptures are so that way, means have thoroughly studied our psyche. That only there are three types of desires. All the desires, innumerable desires, at last can be boiled down to only three. Putreshana, desire for progeny. Vittashana, desire for wealth. And Yashashana, desire for name and fame. Now all the three, if you really try to find out their nature, again, boils down to putreshana, desire for progeny, everything. You may say how? That it is actually the working of the nature, that it is not me. Through putra, through the progeny, the nature is sustained, nature continues. So I understand that putreshana, uh, through putreshana, the nature is sustained, I understand. But what about vitteshana? But first, I have to sustain myself to have progeny. Vitta speaks of sustaining yourself. And then Yashashana, what it has to do with Putreshana. Throughout the nature, you will find that one has to dominate over others to ensure the propagation of the genes. In the forest, you find that the male lion has its own territory. It won't allow any other male lions to enter there. That speaks of Yesha, power. Why? To ensure that its genes are propagated. So again, it speaks of Putreshana, this nature's work. In human being, in a human life also, Yesha, you are just to study, to get a good uh, academic results, and then based on that, to have a, get established in good profession. Of course, for what? At last, to have a life partner, a match. If you are really established, then you have a good match. And that again speaks of progeny. So all the three desires at last comes down to Putresha. And now, the nature has very nicely, uh, what you say that, uh, devised this how to give happiness. 
they have planned in such a way that whenever you find your life, any desire is fulfilled. You are at the climax of happiness. But it never stays there. It evaporates immediately. And when it evaporates, next time when you are again having the desire, you always remember the climax. You forget the evaporation. We always have in our mind the picture of only the good side of all our happiness. That there are so many uh, negativities in it. That when I go for camping, the next time when I plan for the camping, first I went for the camping, it entailed a lot of hardships. Along with, of course, the adventure. With the adventure, there was so much hardship. Next time when I plan, it's only those adventures that's in my mind, the hardships I forget. Why it happens? Because the nature somehow has to impel us to do something for its own propagation. So first we have to have that endeavor and it will give us happiness. That happiness will always motivate us to do that. But it, that happiness will never be permanent because if it is permanent, I won't try again. If after taking food once, I go into samadhi, that happiness gets me to some tremendous engrossment, I won't feel like eating again. And that will wither me away, I will die. Nature's work won't be done. So it has to come down. For nature to sustain, it has to come down. So happiness can never be permanent. The nature's plan is that because otherwise nature cannot be sustained. If it can give, if it gives you a permanent happiness, it will never be sustained. So it has to come down. But again, next time when I try, if I follow, if I just remember the evaporation, I won't try. So the nature makes me forget all the hardships, all the evaporation. It keeps, it keeps in my mind only the ecstasy. Just see how nature is befooling us. Happiness is never ours. And again, you will find that we always find more happiness in anticipation than in the act itself. You plan to go for a trip. When you're already in the trip, you find it's flat. All the so-called, the, all the sense of adventure which you're having when you're planning, all the excitement, it's gone. Why? Because once you're anticipating and you have planned, nature's work is done, done. Once the plan is over, you're already doing it. The nature has now no intention to give you happiness because after all, he has already made you, she has already made you to do the thing. So you will find, and there is always more happiness in anticipation. There's more sense of adventure, thrill in anticipation than in that itself. So now you will understand why God is saying, we never enjoy the results of life. We will be eternally dissatisfied. The plan of the universe is such. It's not there, out there. The universe is not there, out there. The nature is not out there to ensure my happiness. It will use the happiness as a lollipop. It will give it little and take away and make me run in that, you say, what you say, that uh, in a treadmill. Hedonistic treadmill. In a treadmill, we are constantly running, but we go nowhere in the same place we run, ever running, never reaching, not a distant glimpse of shore. In the same place we go running, eternally dissatisfied, no satisfaction. Because that's the nature of the world. But we being fooled, eternally chase after those desires, thinking that Fala is waiting for me. It's not waiting. It will just come for a fraction of a second and goes. That's the plan of the nature. 
And, and that's the way that happiness is there to lure us to do something by which the nature is sustained. It's not there to really give us happiness. So that's why don't desire for that. You will never get happiness that way. But the action do have a meaning. This action out of ignorance it has started. The same action has to go on to take us out of ignorance. The same action which has taken us spirally downwards and take us spirally upwards. Only the motivation behind it has to change. But with the eternal change after the tires our action started, now I know very well it has created an impulse which cannot be stopped immediately. I have to take away the force behind it, the desire, impulsive force, and then the chitta shuddhi starts. Then the action goes on. But it it goes on till the past karma is exhausted, leading you to the state of this perfect illumination where you are established in yourself. Karma can bound, bind you no more. So that's the idea of this sloka. So we will elaborate a bit more on this sloka again in the next class. These slokas are so important. We, are, we hear it again and again. But it's always it's good to contemplate. Uh, in our order, Swami Turiyananda, he was the manifestation of Bhagavad Gita. That's what Sri Ramakrishna used to say, that he is, that through his life as if Bhagavad Gita is manifesting. Swami Vivekananda took him to the West because uh, he, he, he found that his life is established in what Bhagavad Gita teaches. He told to the people in the West, now I will bring a person who will just be a physical demonstration, we will be a practical demonstration of what I teach. And in the Turiyananda's life, we find an interesting thing. Throughout his life, this Bhagavad Gita was his eternal companion. He won't go on reading the slokas after sloka. He will just read one sloka and go on, throughout the day he will contemplate on it. Throughout the day he will contemplate on it. Because there are layers of understanding in it. So that's what we are also trying to do. The take up the sloka. The words appear so simple, but there are so many hidden meanings between the lines, which we have to contemplate and become more. We should have a very clear understanding of it. And then only the Bhagavad Gita can really become the sucker of our life, the nectar of our life, with which. We can bring it by understanding it in its proper perspective. We can bring a total overhauling of our personality, resulting in the ultimate fulfillment which we all desire. So, with this, we stop our discussion today. We will continue from the 47th sloka uh, again in the next class. Thank you all. Namaste.